Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome inside the feral zone of the Troubled Men podcast. Operating under cover of darkness, I am Renee Komen, on the line with my guest co-host, the notorious drummer, record producer, provocateur, the great Mr. Carlo Nuccio. Welcome, Carlo. Hello there, Renee. Man, so uh, Carla, this is the uh, the maiden installment of the uh, Feral Zone podcast. It's it's kind of a, a sister podcast of uh, of of the Troubled Men podcast. It'll be showing up in this space periodically, uh, you know, while Manny is otherwise occupied, or you know, when circumstances call for it. So uh, it's it's great to have you here on this this first episode. Uh, you know, the the listeners will notice some things about this will be similar. Some things uh, may be different, but uh, you know, uh, the the listeners are certainly familiar with you. You're no Carlo. You're no stranger to to the uh, to the troubled nation. This is, I believe, your third appearance on the podcast. I believe it is, and I'm proud to be feral. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I am just uh, re- revealing that name, and I felt like it, it fits all of the uh, all of the participants for sure. Oh. And uh, you know, people may know you uh, with such bands that you currently play with, like uh, Malavitas, uh, Alex McMurray Band, Lulu and the Broadsides, uh, Benny Grunch and the Bunch. Now, Carlo, um, you were just out on the road, right, with uh, with Alex McMurray, huh? I was indeed, and I made it home after two flights without COVID. Okay, congratulations. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Um, yeah, it was a lot of outdoor stuff, vaccine-necessary kind of shows, and it made me feel a little better having that. But, right. Um, generally, everything went well. Nice. You know, I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, yeah, it's nice, nice to get out. I guess that's the first... Uh, trip out of town you've done in 18 months or so huh that's exactly right i i i've been one of those shut-ins you know i got a nice little compound over here so my wife and i just we shut in and uh you know pack the freezer full of meats and such okay okay well uh well uh carmen must have been uh happy for the a little bit of relief a little bit of a break from carlo no Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure she is. She won't admit to it, but I'm sure she is. I know that when I go to sleep, I'm happy for the break from Carlo. I hear. Yes, I understand. Uh, I, I feel yeah. the same way. I'm all, I am I often wake uh, up every day with the feelings like, God damn, this again? Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's real simple. You know, when you start annoying yourself, you know, you're, you become suddenly okay with death. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, it, it gives you some perspective, I guess. You know, hey, sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I had a, a an identity theft attempt last week. Someone I did too. Go, really? go, go. Crazy. Yes. So, well, apparently, I was saying this on last week's episode that fraud is so rampant right now that the the uh, the credit rating services have gone from a yearly credit report to now they will give you a weekly credit report. That's how. That's how much fraud it has increased. But, but so on the, the subject of the identity theft, this guy walked in, had, had a, his own picture and all of my information on what looked like a Louisiana ID. But, you know, I told that story. But I was thinking, man, look, 
you want to take my identity as someone who has no choice i have to walk around with my identity all the time i assure you this is no fucking picnic man i mean you know uh, I, I don't have a choice but you can walk away why would you know i i, I don't uh, so i think I'm, might- I'm, yeah i'm pretty sure if they suddenly found themselves with my identity they'd return it yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. that's what i'm yeah. thinking right mm-hmm. crazy so so you had the same thing wow well everybody uh, you know keep an eye on your finances out there you know keep an eye on your credit reports i actually went ahead and and uh put a freeze on all my credit reports so no one can open an account in my name so uh yeah i i i uh i had another odd thing happen uh recently is that i had to have an mri you know, being the troubled man that I am, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of wear and tear on my body. So I had to have an MRI. And after the MRI... Turns out you are pregnant. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I don't think it takes an MRI to figure that out. Uh, okay. But after the MRI, uh, the nurse uh, from the internal specialist that sees me all the time says, look, the doctor wants to talk to you. And I said, oh, okay, uh, when you want me to come in? And, and, and she says, well, I'm going to get you the first available appointment. And I said, okay. I said, you want to uh, let me know what it is? She goes, I can't. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what, what do you mean you can't? She, she's not cleared to tell me what it is. And then uh, after waiting three days, I finally got the appointment, and it's in October. I'm like, well, you know, there's a couple of things occurred to me. She said, first of all, the doctor needs to talk to you about some options. And uh, I'm like, options? Well, that's good. If I have options, I like options. That's good. And and, and it can't be that serious if the appointment's on the third. But now my poor wife, you know, she's just, you know, she's like, what do you think it is? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm perfectly okay with waiting, you know. Right, but, right, uh, right. Then I don't think they realize how many people they affect with this half information, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's, uh, you know, they, they're operating under those HIPAA laws, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, you Pretty know, wacky some stuff. Unintended consequences. Well, speaking of, uh, of medical news, I'm sure you, you must have seen this uh, in, you know, the, the anti vaxxers in certain places are. Uh, they they decided in, in, in instead of uh, using a, a you know a, a vaccine that's been used by over a billion people, they're uh, taking now this uh, heartworm medicine for livestock, ivermectin. Right. Yeah, they 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 can't keep it in in stores. Yeah, it, it's just it's beautiful. It's like um, you know pretty much they're pleading the case that there hasn't been enough study on the vaccines for me to take it but i'm going to go ahead and take what i give my mule right you know <laughs> it's just it, it's a it's a wacky world out there you know well you know I, I was and i was thinking about that just kind of uh you know extrapolating some of these same people uh, who who i know who you know would would do coke from a stranger in a bar bathroom are concerned about this uh, vaccine that's been recommended by their doctor and like i said used by over a billion people it's it's doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense you know right and and you know we know from our cocaine using days that every batch tasted different you know and you know it got to the point where you could identify oh you know it's like 
oh, what kind of fuel did they use in that? You know, come on, man. Diesel? <laughs> you know? It's, it's crazy. It's like, oh, it smells like diesel. <laughs> Must be that shit coming up from Mexico. Right, right. This is some of that, uh, that uh, ethanol-free. Yeah. It's, uh, it's right, good. exactly. Right. Yeah. My body is a temple. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that a setup for something? Of doom. Oh, okay, I, I, knew, yeah. I knew, knew the punchline <laughs> had to be coming. Yeah. Well, uh, well, so we've had some sad news uh, since the last podcast. Well, we, we lost uh, Don Everly, the, the last remaining Everly brother. And, mm -hmm. then, and then in... No, he's not. Phil's alive. Phil is very much alive. Is that true? Yes. Okay, well, I'm going to cut this part out. Um, <laughs> 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 no so so we lost the first uh, everly brother to go don everly yeah. yes it's a we tragic lost loss well but then uh aside from that we lost the great charlie watts yeah that's uh that's a tough one yes that's yes. a tough one um i i if, for years uh, you know being friends with ian mcglagan <clears throat> he always you know i'd say man i gotta meet charlie i gotta meet charlie and he was going to set it up. And then he died. Mm. You know, so. Nerve. My, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> just just as it was going to come to fruition. You know, it's just, it ended. And uh, it doesn't matter. I've got a million memories with uh, Bobby Keys, you know. Nice. That rascal when he nice. was alive. Well, so <clears throat> it, it brings up the question, um, you mm -hmm. know, and this is, you don't have to have a definitive answer, but, you know, people are, are wondering, uh, you know, should the Stones keep playing without Charlie? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, there, there are enough guys who cut their teeth on Charlie. Uh, I'm not saying that I'd like to see somebody come in there that can mimic or, or bring them to like, you know, a Bourbon Street version sure. uh, of of the Rolling Stones, but there's a lot of players who, who get it that could step in there and do that job. Yeah. I, I tend to, to agree with you in that, uh, you know, the, the carrying on the legacy is, is important. It's, it's, it's a tribute to, to Charlie, you know, the, the, the yeah. music is bigger than any one individual. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, you lose Keith and this, this argument gets harder to make, but, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not there yet. You, you know, it's, what's funny about what you just said, well, it's not funny at all, actually. Um, the Superdome show, which I attended, right, I was there. Uh, which was the last time they were here. I can't remember the date. Uh, Keith didn't seem real with it. And, you know, Ronnie Wood was kind of standing close by. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder about Keith's health. I mean, I mean, I mean as far as playing guitar health, walking out on stage, being on the road, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So I don't, I don't know what it will become, but I, I hope they don't go into relentless touring like they have been over the last 20 years. Well, you know, in total 50 years, but, <laughs> you know, the last few seem to be a little bit of a struggle. Um, mix hard, hard issue and right right yeah well uh you know yeah. there's no no spring chickens for sure but you know i thought that show was terrific at the superdome i, I thought they were it was totally rocking i did too but i did see where uh ronnie picked up on some solos that keith kind of just ducked out right yeah ron, so. ron was playing a lot of guitar that night for sure yeah man. yeah 
Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you know, I had a, a funny thing happen uh, the other day. I, I walked in my backyard, and uh, there was a a dead squirrel on my patio, but he looked <laughs> completely, you know, un un uh, damaged. He was looked like he was sleeping, mm-hmm. and uh, so I have a friend who kind of dabbles oh. in taxidermy just as a hobby. She's done a few squirrels, so I took a picture of him. And uh, I sent a text to her and I said, uh, any desire for a perfectly intact dead squirrel sitting in my back patio? So then uh, a, little bit, a, new a, little, reply came. a little bit of time goes by. The person says, uh, who is this? <laughs> said, uh, the squirrel assassin. Uh, I said, Renee Coleman. And then some more time goes by. And I said, this is Lizzie, right? The person answers back, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's funny. I, I recently, you know, had a run in with a squirrel. But unfortunately, this squirrel was only half dead. I mean, li- literally half dead. Uh, my cat, the Tom, got a hold of it. Oh, butter. And... Uh, I guess he managed to break his back mm. oh, uh, in in the struggle, and and to look at the squirrel, the squirrel looked perfectly fine except for his back legs were, you know, flared out. And I was right. like, "Come on, come on, it's, it's safe now. I got the cat away." <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like pushing him in the butt, and he's trying to bite me. I got a you know, little oh, barbecue geez. glove oh, on, man. and and the squirrel's like, "Please, you know, crush me, do something." And right. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to step on a squirrel's head. So, you know, I did the totally inhumane thing and stuck him in a plastic bag and put him at the bottom of the garbage can and just let him, I let him suffocate instead. Oh man. Oh geez. Jeez. I I didn't know what to do. What what, what was a man to do? You know, I I don't know. I don't know. It's, it it does demand a lot of, uh, a lot of responsibility of you there. But, but so, so I had to, to uh, text this person back and say, Oh geez. So sorry. You know, I, uh, that that is kind of a a weird text to get from a stranger as a picture of a dead squirrel and an offer that, that, you know, it's, it's yours for the taking. So uh, the, person, the, the person answered back. I said, oh, I thought that it was a friend of mine. I don't know. This used to be her number. And the person said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. That's the, the best laugh I had all day. I said, yeah, me too. So, uh, so you know, be, be careful about sending those pictures to, uh, to uh, uh, numbers you haven't used in a while because they, they yeah. may reassigned. You know? Well, just be careful with the content. You sure. Know? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Be careful with the content. You know, it's like now if I were just driving down the road and somebody sent me a dead squirrel and said, you know, you have any use for this perfectly intact dead squirrel, I, I, I'd immediately run to the SPCA and 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 say, you got to stop this man. <laughs> Make a report. <laughs> you got to write this guy up. I don't know who it is, but he just sent me this. Yeah, I still couldn't figure out what happened to the squirrel. You know, you, it's uh, you know, squirrels don't usually fall to their death or anything. You know, but he just looked uh, like he was sleeping. His eyes were open, except well, I mean, he looked like he was resting. Could anyway. have been a heart attack. I, I guess I guess that happens in the animal kingdom, you know. I guess this is you know you could have an aneurysm or something. Who knows? I know if you put me in a tree, and I go to jump thirty feet to another tree, I'm pretty sure that in you know the midst of the jump, 
I, I'm not going to be right in the heart. So, you know, it'd be beating pretty good. And yeah, I reckon a squirrel's heart beats pretty fast already. So maybe he just realized somewhere in midair that he wasn't going to make it to the next branch. I don't know. We'll never know. We'll never know, Carlo. Never but, know. Uh, you know, the, the mysteries, uh, <laughs> mysteries continue. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, you and I have uh, been joshing for a good long time here. Maybe we should get uh, get our guest in here. Oh, we have a guest. We do have a guest. Oh, yeah, great. have a terrific guest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, our, our, our guest is uh, he's, he's a fellow. I actually met him through you, Carlo. He's, uh, he's one of the most adventurous melodic percussionists around. He's a terrific percussionist, vibraphonist specifically, mm-hmm. a vocalist, band leader, composer. MC, he's a uh, mm-hmm. he's a member of uh, been a member of uh, Critters Buggin', Garage Atois, uh, Les Claypool's Fancy Band, and many other bands. He's a leader on on his own. He's put out so many records. We'll get into all of that, but uh, without further ado, the great Mister Mike Dillon. Welcome, Mike. Hey Renee. Hey Carlo. How y'all doing? Good, man. Ooh. Boy, you're coming in really hot on that microphone. Uh, okay, yeah. I'll take it away from my mouth, and I'll say it again. Hey, how y'all doing, Renee? Hey, what's up, Carlo? Um, you know, you know what goes on with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we're, we're thrilled to have you, Mike. You know, you're, you're yes. a guest that uh, several other uh, prior guests have mentioned now your name's been on the list even before that but uh you know we'd, we'll have somebody like a, a doug Belode on and at the end they go you know you should get mike Dillon on or you know we'll have uh have a uh, derek freeman and at the end he goes you know you should get mike Dillon on and go no no it's his name's on the list man I'm, I'm getting to him awesome we finally have you here so so mike uh we're just going to kind of trace some of your origins uh and you know how you how you got yourself in the the fix you're in here um, so to speak. Uh, fix? Did you say fix? I, I did. I did. Yes, I'm cho- choosing my words carefully. It's a, it's it's a it's a, a bit of foreshadowing there. Um, yes, yes, a little a little literary illusion. I see. There you go. There you go. Um, so uh, you grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Is that correct? Well, actually, I was born there. Like, and then we we my dad was a Texas football coach. He was a. Hmm. Texas, you know, football hero, went on and played at Texas A&M. And back in those days in the 60s, you played, you know, offense and defense. And if you were hurt, they just taped you up and said, we'll fix it at the end of the season. He probably would have gone pro, but uh, he played his entire senior season with a dislocated shoulder. And um, so he was relegated to being a football coach. Okay. And he was a high school football coach in Texas, so we moved all over. So went from after being born in San Antonio, moved to Corpus Christi and Lubbock and Dallas and Irvine and Houston and, and oh, okay, all of the fi- all the finer cities in Texas, all the armpits of Texas. Yes, <laughs> yeah, <indeed>. exactly. <laughs> so, so you didn't really grow up in San Antonio with that that Conjunto uh, tradition and and uh, the you know Flaco Jimenez and Santiago Jimenez, but uh, and Steve Jordan, Steve Steve Jordan, of course, of course, we can't forget Steve Jordan. The um, great Steve Jordan, not the drummer. No, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Esteban Hordan, yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. The Jimi Hendrix of the button accordion. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, so so where were you living in, in your high school years? Because I know I'm, I'm just guessing jumping ahead, you 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 know, you're you're a jazz player primarily, but but you obviously have been influenced greatly by punk rock. And if, if not musically, certainly mm, spiritually, I don't know, aesthetically. So I'm just thinking, um, were, was there a punk rock scene where, when you were in high school? And tell, tell us about that. When I was in high school, I was a total music nerd. I was like in the Houston Youth Symphony and studying drums with a couple of different people. One of them is a guy named Joel Fulgham. And, um, and I was getting ready to go to North Texas and went and studied music up there. And when I was up there, I think it was probably after my sophomore year, I was starting to play with bands around Dallas, you know, and there was a good scene in Deep Elm, 1988, mm -hmm. uh, 89. And I was jamming with this reggae band. They're like, hey, come see, uh, come play with us tomorrow night. We're opening for this reggae hardcore band from Dallas. So, yeah, that was actually the summer of 87. So I was like, cool. So reggae hardcore hardcore band from dc we know who that is it was the bad brain so it was like nice you know i was like summer of 87 so i was 21 had my mind blown open <laughs> and, and you know because i mean the first thing hr did was do a gainer into the crowd uh -huh. and and the place erupted so you know i was just like i think before that gig that day i played with the north texas panhandlers which is our which was a steel drum band. So, you know, I was heavily into percussion and, and all that world, everything from drum corps to classical stuff. And then okay. saw, started hanging out in Deep Elm. So I sort of came to punk rock a little late. Like in high school, my friend that we used to get weed from, his older sister was into punk rock. So I was aware of the Buzzcocks and the Dead Kennedys, but... You know, I wasn't hanging out going to see the big boys play in 1984 or whatever. You know, it wasn't until I was in a band that was at a show. You know, I'm like standing side the stage watching those guys explode at their prime. So it was a pretty good introduction. Yes, yes. Now, for those that don't know, uh, you know, the North Texas State University at Denton was a uh, a huge uh, music mecca. It's like one of those state schools that people go from to from all over the country to study music there. You know, I think famously Woody Herman walked in and one time heard like the two o'clock band or something and hired the entire band just straight off the off the floor or something like that. Totally, that was the uh, thing we had. You know, little little sugar plum visions of getting the Maynard Ferguson gig when we were seniors in high school and making the one o'clock your first semester, all that shit. But uh -huh. that's quite a leap from, uh, you know, uh, the college formal music lessons to punk rock, you yeah. know, I, 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 but I see it happen a lot. I knew a lot of well-trained musicians who, you just made that leap, and it was sudden, as you're saying, with yourself. Um, you know, you hear something, bust your head open, and then you're all in. Yeah, you know, it's true. Um, just conceptually, I, I, I see a lot of people who, who talk about, who cite punk rock, who, who don't play in punk rock bands, but they will cite that as a 
you know, like you said, something that that just uh, blew open there the the possibilities f- that that they were imagining. You know, it, it, as well as the the kind of the the DIY uh, ethic that that it that was so much grew out of that. You know, nowadays it's with the development of the music business or the the disintegration of the music business. Now everybody kind of has to operate with with. Uh, you know, and that 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 do-it-yourself attitude, but that was really something that was that was uh, you know a, a str- strongly associated with with punk rock and and that period. Yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden, okay, like that year in particular, I remember seeing Art Blakey play, seeing Tony Williams play, discovering DC Go Go, and then maybe a year later, this band I was in from Denton, we opened for Firehose. And seeing Mike Watt like unload the van and load everything in, you know, that whole time we're just starting to see like, okay, this is how it, it happens, you know. And it's, I mean, it was 1987. So when if you looked up like what was happening on SST, all the punk rock bands or whatever, you know, or hardcore bands, they didn't all sound the same. You know, Meat Puppets and uh, Minutemen and then you know, Bad Brains and Black Flag, they all sounded pretty different, you know? Right. And to me, the the thing that what, what caught my attention the most was it was just the energy. Because to me, it tied into like watching Art Blakey play, even though that was at the end of his life. The second he started playing, it was so much fire. And then seeing Tony Williams play, he was playing louder than a motherfucker with big old sticks. To me, I was like, well, Tony Williams... Bad brains, they're both pretty friggin' intense. So I saw the connection right away at 21, you know, just nice, nice. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, so, so this band, uh, one of the first bands that, that's real popular that you play in, Ten Hands, um, is, that, is that kind of a Denton band? Yeah, that was exactly the band that opened for Firehose. Okay. And, 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 you know, we started going down, you know, because back then to get a gig, None of the clubs had PAs. Carlo, y'all probably remember this shit. You go down and to get a gig, they'd be like, yeah, you can play on Monday nights. You got a PA, you got to bring your own PA. So we started playing every Monday night in Deep Ellum. And that was sort of like my education to like what was happening in the DIY scene. There were all these Dallas bands down there. There was this place called Theater Gallery and Profit Bar. Theater Gallery is where I saw uh bad brains and you know chili peppers the butthole surfers even like jane's addiction first tour all these different bands flame ellipse you know they were everyone would play at the theater gallery and uh Uh tin hands was sort of this we were like this nerdy peter gabriel sort of meets frank zappa band because that was where i was coming from you know i i was a prog head i love zappa and and you know genesis and bandex all those you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra and okay. King Crimson, all that shit. But so like we were all from that position, but me see, being interested in the energy of punk rock and then seeing Fishbone and like, you know, that wave of bands, it was just like, to me, it, I just started gradually going more that way. But if you grew up on Frank Zappa, you're sort of ruined. It's like going to AA, you know, you can never really drink again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of people with Zappa damage. Yeah, it's, sometimes, it's, sometimes they wear it a little bit too much on their sleeves. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, you got to be a little bit goes a long way for sure. Um, 
then this this next band, uh, this band Billy Goat. It's uh, is that kind of a progression from Ten Hands or how do? Yeah, so Ten Hands had gotten popular in Denton, Dallas, Houston, and Austin. We just sort of did that little circuit. And as I was trying to push this to being more of a, you know, energetic, like kind of fishbone chili peppers vibe, they were wanting to go more pop and they kicked me out of the band. Okay. Because <laughs> I was doing lots, lots of drugs and partying. So I started Billy Goat like a month later. And within six months, Billy Goat had, was like selling out clubs all over Dallas. So, you know, my big ass ego at the time was like, Every band I start is going to be doing a thousand people. It's fucking wow. This is the way it goes for the rest of my life. You know, you're sure. like, <laughs> yes, uh, the confidence of youth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, and then, you know, there were a lot of other things discovering about that period, which was 1989. And um, yeah, so that was like, we were all into the funk punk thing, but because, you know, seeing George Clinton and the Chili Peppers and it was just sort of like what everyone was sort of doing at that time and and the, the drummer from Ten Hands quit Ten Hands and joined Billy Goat and the drummer from Billy Goat went over to Ten Hands and but the interesting thing about Billy Goat was when we started it was the whole rhythm section from Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians those guys had just had a number one uh, record that first record they did shooting rubber bands at the star and they were on break writing for their next record so we were all like sort of living in the same neighborhood and we just started billy good as a joke literally like oh that this a friend of ours had this playing a reggae club every wednesday night called exodus and they needed an opening band so i was like let's put together an opening band for them and we started doing it, and the next thing you know, we, we had like wrote 10 songs. By the end of the residency, we were headlining. And uh, <laughs> nice. You know, it probably didn't hurt though that I was, we had like three backup, female backup singers. I got naked on the last song, Everybody Take Your Clothes Off. It just was like debauchery and people throwing chocolate syrup on each other and titty swinging. Right. You know, it, it was. You know, small penises dangling and uh, <laughs> the, whole, the whole nine yards. So that's what Billy Goat. But we were all good players, you know, so there was always an emphasis on the music, but it was a party. Were, were all those guys uh, 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 North Texas State guys or, or just kind of living in that, that, that orbit? Yeah, uh, the drummer had come from New First, The first drummer in Billy Goat was Matt Chamberlain, who now is it's like out in L.A., my good buddy, he records with everyone. And right, he's on the new Dylan record. He plays on, on Rough and Rowdy Ways. Yeah, he did the last Dylan record. So Matt and I were roommates in college. So he was in Bill, he was Billy Goat's first drummer. Then he had to go back to Nebo's tour. And then Earl Harvin from Ten, Ten Hands, because Matt and I were in Ten Hands together. So that was like, and that was when Matt was like, just playing like the Black Page and totally out of his mind, just like super choppy prog drummer, loved Dennis Chambers and all that shit. I remember one day we took, we were at 10 hands rehearsal, a little backstory. And like, we both took a bunch of mushrooms and, and we were sitting there at the Waterburger driving. And he looked at me, he goes, dude, I'm going to play a whole song without a drum fill in it. And I, and I was like, Whoa, Chamberlain, you're saying that it was like his little aha moment of like focusing on the time. Right. 
<laughs> I'm still trying. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he would say the same thing. He's like, I'm still working on my time. But uh, so he left that band and went on to Nubos. Then Earl joined Tin Hands. And when they kicked me out of Tin Hands, then Earl joined Billy Goat. And we had like, we had this, the guitar player wasn't a Nortex guy. He was a little skateboard kid with a Metallica shirt that I met down in Deep Elm. And the bass player had gone to Nortex. So it was a good little combination of uh, skate punk guitars and and uh, some North Texas guys, yeah. You know, you've you've made no secret of your your history with uh, with with narcotics and and dope and speed and all, but um, is this kind of the period where that starts to where you start to experiment with that? That was definitely when, like, at the end of Ten Hands, I can definitely say they kicked me out partly because of my using, because. Uh, and it probably didn't help that one night when I was really loaded, I took a giant, like, I think it was the same weekend, I tried to kick the manager's ass. He pissed me off. And then I, I took a giant, you know, one of those beer pitchers, but it was filled for, with water for the stage and mm. threw it up at the crowd, but it didn't hit the crowd. It went down on the keyboard. This is in Sonic, you know, one of those ancient ones with like right. a floppy disk and you have to load it in for a minute to get one sample. And the next week, they, they kicked me out of the band. So, uh, well, <laughs> what's amazing about uh, that I've found about being a junkie or, you know, very much drug indulgent and being in a music environment is it's no problem when everybody says no more to switch clicks and just, you know, start all over again and just show your ass all over again and... <laughs> You know, you can you can move around like that forever. You know. Yeah, I think you got a good point. I think a lot of people do until finally everyone, no one wants to play, uh, invite you to their sandbox anymore. The word gets around like, nope, you're done. <laughs> what was the what attracted you to to uh, you know using dope in the first place? I mean, what what was the what was the appeal? John Coltrane fucking charlie parker you know i mean definitely the jazz myth the jazz magic i mean it's, it's so cliche you know we joked back then like oh let me guess like you'd run into other junkies and oh, let me guess you read on the road then you read junkie by william s burroughs and you you always had a sort of jazz infatuation and then you try dope for the first time then the next thing you know you're strung out and you're at your first rehab nine months in and it's like yeah that was it Hmm. Oh, is that that quick for you, huh? That quick, huh? I wouldn't say that quick, but you know, <laughs> Billy, Billy Goat, like I, I didn't, I, I dabbled, like you know, right at the end of Tin Hands, snorted it a couple of times, and then was you know mainly just a weekend warrior, but like hadn't didn't have a habit. Started Billy Goat, we started playing all around, and it was just fun. And then we went on the road and lived in New York for summer got signed to Hollywood Records by Bob Cavallo. And I can remember that summer though, I did a shot of dope that first time, summer of 1990. Was that 91? Yeah, summer of 91. Yeah, that's right. It was the summer of 91, did a shot. And then we came back, we got signed. And that's when I got my first habit that fall. And by the next, 
by August of 92. So 11 months in, the band had broken up. Bob Cavallo had called me and said, son, Lowell George died in my arms. You need to get 90 meetings in 90 days. Hollywood paid for my treatment. Because, mm. yeah. you, know, you know, I was already like breaking into houses, the you know, fucking flying home on, on our manager's credit card. That was back when you could just put dope in your pocket, in your socks, flying back to gigs. And I started missing the gigs on that last tour. Earl had gotten sick of the shit. He was the only guy in the band. And that, that little punk rock guitarist that wasn't strung out. So like four of us strung out. Oh, wow. And, and all that happened within a year. Like we we're making a record with Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads, uh -huh. and, you know, and he's producing us. And it, it, it's amazing to look back within a year. I was in my first rehab that August of uh, 92. And, man, and then, you know, I, I don't know. I think I can't even remember everything, but um. Then my mom, when they, they figured out I broke in the house, she was like, you know, she enabled me by saying, well, either you need to move out of Texas or I'm pressing charges. So the band had broken up. And by September of 92, I was up here in Kansas City and I was away from dope. So the geographic cure worked for a minute. And until I would say, you know, what was happening in the Midwest in 1992, we don't have to use that word. But it wasn't called meth back then. I think it was just called crank. Uh -huh. And, and uh, found, you know, discovered that side of, of insanity. You figured you'd like that too, huh? Oh, yeah. I, I was a trash can. I liked anything I could. Uh, yeah, put, yeah. Put. I didn't discriminate. <laughs> I, you know, it was like, oh, y'all don't have that, but you got that. And then it was a whole other level of insanity. But I never did it daily. That shit was too hardcore. And, and through those people, I discovered a morphine connection. So I switched over because in Texas, it was all brown uh, stuff from the cartels. I, I tell you, I've come to learn. Whereas in Kansas City, you know, it was a lot of bikers running speed. It was still made locally. And um, I met guys that were doing, had big old bottles of morphine and morphine pills. So that's when I, you know, after that first habit, I just started doing morphine and I never let it um, ruin the band again. You know, I just sort of one year, you know, my, I got addicted really bad and then got on, that was 94 after my brother died. And then like, oh, you know, cause I was already going to meetings, going back and forth, trying to keep my shit together. And then my mm -hmm. brother died and I was like, fuck it. And I just got high. And I, but this, that time I got on methadone when I was strung out and, and was on methadone all of 95 into 96. So when you're on methadone, it's sort of as easier to keep a habit. And, you know, it was just a Plano garden variety fucking dope fiend that would, enter, you know, want to have sex and do a little uppers. You know, I didn't discriminate if it was Coke or whatever. And right. got, got lucky I didn't die. I overdosed probably five to 10 times on various oh, substances. And, got lucky right so at some point you you uh you you get into the program again and and you you get clean and you're able to put a bunch of time together yeah 2000 you know it was like from, okay so when billy go broke up matt chamberlain called me up and he's like hey dude we need a percussionist and critters bugging so ironically i would go to seattle and i would get out of kansas city and I never looked for dope there because I'm like hanging out with Chamberlain and, you know, he's recording with Macy Gray and, 
you know, the Wallflowers and doing all these records and Mick Jagger's calling him on the phone and shit. And I'm just like fucking working at labor ready because I'd blown my life up. And, you know, in between Critters tours, which there weren't that many of because he was so busy with, you know, Tor Amos and different folks. So, but being around those guys, him and Skerrick, and, and there was just a real attitude to keep my shit together and a pressure. And I was going to meetings out there and then I would come back because my wife was still here and I'd come back and then I'd get loaded for a week and then go back to Seattle and hide out. And it was just sort of that way for three years until one last really bad run. And I was done. And that was in January. Or I thought I was done, but I was mostly done because I haven't had a habit since January of 2000. You know, that was so... You know. There was there was a great quote I, I I read from you today, and I thought, oh, this is genius. You, you said, uh, "If I want to stop buying drugs, I need to stop driving to my dealer's house." Thought, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought, yeah, it's just that simple. You know, that's how I quit smoking cigarettes. I, I stopped, and I thought, if I never take another puff off a cigarette, I can't start smoking again. And I haven't. I, I haven't taken another puff, and I never started smoking again. Yeah, I used to joke, like, because around here I had one person I would always relapse with in, in the late 90s, and it would, I would drive by their house, and if I saw them outside, I'd stop and say hi, and then it was on. And one day I was like, well, you know what? I used to play this game that if God wanted me to get high, that means, you know, I'd see that person outside. That meant time to get loaded. But then finally I was like, well, why don't you stop driving by their house? The, you know, <laughs> it seems so simple in hindsight, but. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you apply it to anything else, it's like, okay, I'm not going to go in the hotel room with the hooker. Exactly. I'm probably not going to fuck her. Right. You know, <laughs> it works on every level you sure know? sure yeah it's 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 a lesson you can extrapolate and apply to anything in, in life mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a genius well um this seems like a a good little time to, to take a break and when we come back i want to talk about your tremendous uh recorded output this past year as well as all these these other uh you know fantastic bands you play in but uh for right now uh we're going to take a little break and uh nation go get yourself another drink and we'll be right back
back. Back with Mr. Mike Dillon. Back with our guest co-host, Mr. Carlo Nucio. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we, the only sponsor we're operating with these days is uh, back to our original sponsor, Loose Change. So, uh, you know, it's, anybody has any uh, loose change in your pants pockets or, uh, or couch cushions or, uh, you know, loose change in your bank account, you can, uh, you know, get in on the act. Uh, it's a listener-supported operation. We ha- you can jump on the PayPal link in the show notes or, uh, you know, join the Patreon page or, uh, you know, get yourself a Troubled Men podcast t-shirt. And, uh, you know, just in, 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 in other areas, you know, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, subscribe, review, rate us, give us five stars, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And, uh, you know, there's a, a, an effort going on by the, the crew of Red Beans right now to um, replace some of the, the, the yes, Fest Fest and uh, and it's that's a, an effort to put on porch concerts and raise money for to pay the uh, wages the festival wages of all these new orleans musicians who are losing out on multiple f- festivals being canceled so uh yes you can go to festfest.org and uh contribute and you know uh, register for a raffle to come have a, uh, a great band do a porch concert for you and it's a very worthy cause we really do appreciate all the efforts of the crew of red beans i think the crew of red beans is how i actually got uh, my first my first uh, vaccine they were facilitating uh, vaccinations for musicians a little bit ahead of the curve so i appreciate appreciate that they, uh, you know i actually called and and logged with them and they never have called so i, I think like the guy leaned back off the phone and they go it's carlo and they oh. said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, lose that. <laughs> lose that. <laughs> Oops, sorry, sorry, lost the, lost the connection. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, they, they knew that you would get yours, Carlo. You know, you, you're, yeah. everyone sees you're a person who will not be denied. So, no, you know, I, they, no, my mom knew that, too. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. you know, someone actually called me with some parental advice. They were seeking parental advice the other day for their, their young child. And uh, I was thinking, God, really, me? <laughs> yeah. Shocking. But, uh, you know, I just started talking. And as I talked, I actually came up with some good answers. And one of my good answers was... Uh, look, you know, people are born how they are, you know, so it's, it's not your job to make your child into what you think they need to be. It's your job to help your child to take what they are and point it in a constructive direction, a direction that will be satisfying to them and, and utilize all these qualities in a positive way. And I thought, as I'm listening to myself, I was like, wow, that actually is really good advice, Renee. You know, you know, you really need to you need to save that for our other podcast, Pearls of Wisdom. Well, uh, we we always sprinkle some pearls of wisdom in in in, oh. in both the Troubled Men podcast and now the Feral Zone podcast. I see. I yes, see. yes, yes. So, in in fact, I'm going to try to extract some of those from our guest, Mr. Mike Dillon. Yes. Welcome back, Mike. So um, we were talking about so the, your bands, and you, you're 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 just getting clean here. Um, since then, well, you know, Critters Buggin'. Again, it's it's one of those bands that has that that uh, uh, New Bohemians rhythm section. You Scarrick, the the great Scarrick. Um, 
kind of a super group in a way. Uh, fantastic, man. It must have been thrilled. I mean, you, you guys, do you guys still make records? Um, that's a good question. We, okay. seem, <laughs> we seem to be in that uh, place of like not really playing gigs anymore, but everyone still chimes in on the group emails and Matt is always finding these little nuggets on these hard drives that he'll discover at his storage space and be like, man, I found this jam from night 2003 with the master musicians of Jajuka. Let's put it mm. out. So there's a lot of stuff like that that uh, he's been putting out lately. Cool. But, uh, you know, Matt's going to come down for Jazz Fest. He's going to play with me at DBA on, the, on uh, October 7th. Oh, man. Because he's vaccinated <laughs> and he likes to jam. It's going to be me, Matt, and Brian Sing Haas and James Singleton. So, nice, um, nice, man. That'll be great. But well, yeah. Well, so, so, but uh, Skerrick plays in another band with you, right? Uh, Garage Atois, the Freak Jazz no, Supergroup. That was a yeah. That was Skerrick, and they still do that. But I don't do that group anymore. They just oh okay. You know, Skerrick and I we played together really hardcore for like nearly about sixteen years, and then we just sort of like decided not to play with each other. Okay. As much. And it wasn't really like a violent thing. It was just like time to play with other people. And wow. um, yeah, it was more like that thing. Skerrick and I still play together with Claypool in this, and this thing called Bastard Jazz, which mm. is sort of a funny improvised music thing that Les leads. And we do it like once a year. So a lot of cross-pollination between all these bands. Yeah, you know, the whole scare, you know, Critters Bugging was funny to me because basically I was just like done with the punk funk thing and looking for something else to do. And Matt called me. And I was like, well, Matt's my buddy. Uh, I don't know if I like this music, but let's go do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just sort of went out to Seattle and I liked the weather out there. And and it was a, it was really weird music they were making, and that was when I started getting back into being a straight percussionist and really jumping into vibes. And it was it was a good challenge, but that was like, like Modesky, Martin Wood, and all those bands were start. Gray Boy All Stars were starting to tour, and somehow Critters Bugging got on some tours with those guys, and that was. But I remember when Skerrick found out that Critters Bugging was called a jam band. It was like sort of the beginning of the end for his jam band like love or whatever he's like i can't believe they say we're a jam band so yeah that's a pretty broad term that gets applied pretty liberally and yeah i can never quite figure out how people wind up in that that uh category or not in that category yeah i think it's sort of one of those things if they don't know what you are they just say you're a jam band you know and i've come to appreciate the fans in the scene uh you know, I, I remember one of my old buddies from New York was like, why did he start playing in jam bands? <laughs> That's what he said to you? I, th I think pretty much, you know, people think if it's 64 more bars of solo, it's a jam band, you know? Yeah, um, so, you know, that that's sort of it. There's, we, It doesn't sound like traditional jazz, and they have long solos. They're a jam band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Well, uh, well, Mike, let's let's get into uh, your your tremendous output over the last year or so. So, so we all go into lockdown. Um, 
like nine months later, you released three records uh, in on successive months. So, so you 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 put out the the, the first one is uh, "Shoot the Moon," and and that's under the band uh, Mike Dillon and Punkadelic. Yeah. And and uh, that's that's kind of uh, it's it sounds kind of uh, beef hearty. I don't know how how you would describe that that project. Well, I'm glad your ears heard that because we that that thing started with you know bringing up Matt's name again. Matt and I at the beginning of lockdown were just sending tracks to each other, and I'd be like, "Play this on that," or "Can you give me a drum track?" And then I started getting some other drummers that had studios. And then we got a guitar player, you know, and I've been doing most of the synths and the vibes and some bass synth and a little piano, but I can't play guitar. So I was like, well, let's get my buddy to play guitar. And it seemed like every track, we're like, can you do like Butthole Surfers meets Captain Beefheart? Mm-hmm. And, and this was, is my buddy who played with me on the last Ricky Lee Jones tour we did right before lockdown. We did like nice. six, six months with her. In fact, I go out with her on Monday. That must have been cool, huh? Now, tell, well, tell, well, let's just just pivot to that. Uh, talk about playing with Ricky Lee Jones. Jeez, Wes, man, what a what a what an icon! I mean, Ricky's awesome, you know. And, and it was sort of funny. We both like first tour. It's like, hey, used to do dope. Used to do dope. Let's talk about it. How stupid <laughs> we were doing dope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, and you hear uh, she's been clean off dope since like the eighties, but. Uh, mm. There's, there's a certain bond amongst musicians um, that, that when you have that to like sort of open the thing, but that's not really what attracted. She lit, was living in New Orleans and she would come see James Singleton play. And it was a gig with Freilich and Singleton and all these folks, one of his 10 people things at, at the Marini Opera House. Mm-hmm. She went up. She called me like two days later and said, hey, Mike, it's Ricky Lee. You want to go on tour with me? And I'm like, I love you. I'd love to go on tour with you. And she goes, I go, when's the tour? She goes, next week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to New Orleans. Uh, And I'm like, well, I'm already sort of booked. So, you know, we carved some time up. And first rehearsal was over there in Musicians Village. She brought a guitar over to my house and we just played and we connected and she said, well, you know, I was watching you play that first night, and I liked the way you played Shaker. You were playing it. I was thinking, man, I think I could play with this guy. And we just, that week, it was right around Mardi Gras 2016. I remember fitting in three days, and I carved out a week to be on our six-week tour, and we just had a total blast because it was just duo and mm. playing all her classic songs, but she was just really letting me color them and, do what I want wanted with them, you know, playing like, right. you know, we belong together. The song she, you know, I don't know who she wrote about, about, but you know, all these classic songs, or even like just mm-hmm. playing bongos on Chucky's in Love, the song everyone knows. Right. If, if they don't remember Ricky Lee, you say Chucky's in Love, and they're like, oh yeah, I remember that song. Oh Chucky Weiss. Oh Chucky Weiss. Speaking of another person yeah, just, just passed, just passed, passed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's been a great learning experience because. I remember that first rehearsal. She goes, "Well, I yell at my band sometimes, and but <laughs> and I and then I hear the tapes and I think I shouldn't yell at them." But she goes, "But and I go, well, you did have like the best musicians on the planet, like in your band when you're or in the studio." And she was like, "Yeah." So, but it's that old school attitude of just demanding a lot, 
and and I like that. I like that challenge. So I was like, yeah, Steve Gadd was your drummer. And I remember we were all geeking out on Steve Gadd back then, and we still do. Right. And, and you know, on Chuck, you should be like, can you just like groove a little harder? I mean, and I'll be like, you mean like Steve? Okay, I'll work on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it, it, it's, 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 kind of, uh, it's kind of funny that she would yell at her band, but now you're the only other player. So you get to be the recipient of all of her uh, anger. <laughs> you know, age is a great thing. She's mellowed out so much, and she's like, you know, she hardly ever yells anymore. And you know, we did have like a three, four piece band that we toured with her, and you know, it's. Um, I, I I think some of that yelling, to touch on another subject, comes from like being a woman in a man's world. Yep. I, I think the only way a woman there's two ways you can get a man's attention, unfortunately, and that's either sit in their lap when they ask you, come here, little girl, like record company executives did to her back in the day. Mm-hmm. Or you can be like, hey, you motherfuckers, wake the fuck up. Pay attention. Yeah, hit him over the head with a baseball bat. That works. Too. Yeah, I remember we were playing Carnegie Hall, the small room, and the, and the fucking hands were being classic New York you know, stage hands just taking their time. And we were an hour and a half pace sound check. And she showed up and she just went, what are you motherfuckers doing? I never seen a group of New York stagehands kick it into action. And then she just tur- <laughs> she turned around. She just sort of smiled at me. <laughs> nice. I was like, well, I was like well, yeah, you're, you're fucking smart, Ricky. Right. So, she knew what she's doing. She yeah, she it sounds doing. like she's mellowing nicely. She, 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 <laughs> yeah. out. She, she, can, she, can, she can lay it out when she needs to. But, um, Yeah. So it's the, the passion, you know, it's like all this, this doesn't come from anger. It comes from people who care about the music who, you know, it's, it's, uh, you take it personally. So of course you react personally, you know, it's, that's uh, the way it has to be. You know, you, 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 you need to learn to manage your emotions, but you don't want to divorce your emotions from it. It's like, like the, the thing of, of the, uh, the child rearing. It's like, you, you don't want to break this person. You don't want to change them. You just want to. Have, you know, be able to harness these the, these emotions. Yeah, get, get it, getting back to your your. So that was the 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 first of the trilogy of of Mike Dillon releases, "Shoot the Moon." Um. So then you you have the the second one you put out a month later is "Suitcase Man," and that's more of like a, a talk about that record. It's more of a stripped down song cycle, huh? Yeah, you know, it was me trying to be. Uh all these singer songwriters I play with, they do one thing in nearly every show and they just take a guitar and they sing by themselves to a whole theater full of people. And they make people cry, including myself. I mean, Ricky Lee's made me cry so many times on stage and I'll be like, God damn it. I don't want to cry again. Don't. (laughs) And the next thing you know, I'm crying because she just like, you know, she can, she just delivers it and gets you. And, and, you know, it's just, it's just like seeing the bad brains. You're like, ooh, that looks fun. I want to do that. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I obsess with people like Nick Drake and, you know, Elliot Smith, people like that. And it was, it was during the lockdown. And I just started writing songs on marimba and doing these just sort of like super simple. And then all of a sudden I, was, I released one on Instagram, Suitcase Man, the title track. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people really reacted to it. And I was, you know, fucking Anders had mentioned once, he was like, 
man, all these punk rock, all this punk rock shit you do, you ought to try doing something vulnerable and sensitive. I'd love to see you do that. And, and I'd done it with an instrumental record called Function and Broke. And then another one called, uh, that came out last summer, you know, right. It came, it came out the summer of the pandemic called Rosewood. And they're both just instrumental records and Function and Broke. I did a lot of Elliot Smith's in, instrumental. And, nice. and, and so, you know, I, I studied him like the way Miles studied Sinatra, you know, just mm. trying to be more lyrical with my vibraphone playing. So you don't just sound like a, a dude just playing scales or whatever. Right. So, and the next thing you know, I was having fun and people were complimentary of it. And I was like, I was like, all right, I'm just going to do like a singer songwriter record, but just with marimba, you know, another guy, the guy you play with Alex McMurray, you know, come on, you know, Alex is like such a great songwriter. So you play with these guys and they're so inspiring and they inspire me to like, do my own thing and get out your shit that you got in your head. So that record was good for me. Cause I finally like all these years later processed my brother's dying, dying. The last song was a song for him, you know? Oh was, yeah. It's a beautiful song, man. I didn't realize what that, where that was coming from, but uh, yeah, you wow. know, you never went bald. You never went gray. You stole you away. You know, he, he died from suicide. And, oh, I'm so sorry. And you know, I can talk about it now. It's been, it was 1994 that happened. But, you know, whether it's addiction or, or mental illness or whatever, we've come a long way since the 90s when no one even knew what the term bipolar was. I mean, he wasn't a junkie. He was like a friggin' lawyer, you know, spoke Latin, was graduate top of UT law, completely different skill set than I have. But still, he got that depression. And, you know, my mom's like, well, you got depressed and you self-medicated. He got depressed and they put him on meds and then he got off of them and he offed himself, you know, and I'm simplifying it, but, but, you know, cause, but it, it's all the same thing, you know, it, it's all the same thing. It's just fucking luck of the draw. Why some of us die and some of us don't, you know, what do you think about it, Carlo? I mean, well, you know, it, it's funny you ask me because I have no experience with this, right? Um, no, I, I, I think, yeah, it's certainly the luck of the draw. I mean, you know, while I was walking my path, you know, I, I, mean, I was watching guys drop right and left and, you know, every day I'm alive at this point, it's like, oh, well, this is extra, you know, this yeah. is extra, anything I get to do, you know, and, and nothing really startles me. You know, you could you could probably tell me tomorrow, well, look, this is it. You're stage four. You, you got six months. And I go, wow, I lasted this long, you know. Right, right. But, <laughs> but it is indeed the luck of the draw, man. It's right. You know, we played Russian roulette and the bullet, which, you know, in the chamber never, you know, balanced with the with the, the trigger. You know, I mean, we just, we pulled the trigger over and over again, but it never happened. And, and like you said, and I'm sure it was the case with your brother, you know, there was something we were hiding. There was something we were masking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And you gotta, you kind of got to take a look at it to figure, figure whether you want to be alive or not. And, uh, these days for me, I just choose to be alive. Well, yeah, man. Yeah, you got to just keep, uh, you know, groping forward in the darkness, man. Just, you know, trying to put one foot in front of the other.
Yeah, you know, the, the existential nature of getting older, like you said something earlier about like when you wake up and you like, you're annoyed with yourself and you're like, yeah, okay, I'm okay with death now, finally. <laughs> but right. it's sort of the same thing with like for me with self-destruction because I don't look at relapse anymore like fucking let's go party. I look at it like, all right, suicide opportunity number 23,023. Uh, you know, it really is a suicide. But getting older, you're like, well, fucking nature is going to do it for me soon enough. You know, I, I don't need to fucking play that card, you know. Right. So, why, why rush things? Why it rush things? Soon it's going to happen soon enough. You know. Well, I, I remember hearing a story about, and you know, and here he is in the hospital with a colostomy bag and, you know, got a li limited time to die. And they're like, hey, look, you know, you could carry on for a little while. And if you just don't do this, but here he is yucking up cocaine and drinking in the hospital, people bringing up pints. Oh, and when they said, what, why are you doing this? He said, man, a man's got to die of something. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I really get that, uh, but I don't think I'm in the the mood to egg it on anymore. No, no. Well, good. That's that's good. No need to egg it on. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Especially, especially, uh, you know, we're we're taking fire from every every angle at this point. You know, you gotta. I don't know. Does anybody ever commit suicide in in a uh, foxhole? Or I mean, does it's, it's, <laughs> right? It's interesting. Right. You know, once if if the fire is all coming from outside, do you do, does the 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 instinct for self-preservation override everything. I, I think that might be the case. I think we're, we're, yeah. And if you jump off a diving board, that space between hitting the water and the diving board, you're probably not going to kill yourself. You know, oh. it's just, you know, staying in the moment is a big part of it. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, there's something, uh, getting back to the suitcase, man, there was something that caught my attention is you, you cover uh, this Bob Wills song, Roly Poly. Now, what possessed you to, to, to put Roly Poly on that record? Well, it's sort of like my, uh, I, I think Bob Wills made some of the greatest music ever. Oh, yeah. You know, and it connected. Uh, yeah, it's just that. Oh, you know. Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, I love listening to Bob Wills, and the funny thing about it is, my grandfather, we'd drive around, and I remember being like in junior high, and that's all he would listen to, you know, mm. that Merle Haggard. So I remember being really annoyed, like, can't you put some Rush on? But I knew better. That's a leap. He would have hit me. You know, he wouldn't have put me in a corner. He would have punched me. Yeah. Back, you know, that was 1979 or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, no. Well, Kenny Lee and the AHA, you know, they're not far apart. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, oh, that's a, that's a good point. Oh, you, sacrilege, Carlo. How dare you? <laughs> and the men who hold high places. AHA! <laughs> Oh, brother. This is really getting out of hand here. I'm losing control of this. Record three. Record three. Let's talk about record, record three. But uh, yeah, so I, no, I was just saying that that's my love of Bob Wills. And I sort of fucked around with it and slowed it down and got this 12 year old kid in town up here in Kansas City who's like really crushing it. And got him to sing the harmonies on it. So it was pretty creepy and weird, and I like it. So there you have it. Uh, so, so then getting to the third record in the trilogy, uh, 1918, and this is, uh, this is just a straight Mike Dillon record, right? 
and this deals uh, mostly with the pandemic. Uh, it's mostly instrumental record, although you, you do have uh, some, some vocal tunes on there. I actually learned a new word uh, from that record today, and, and uh, it's a word that's never in my vocab, never even heard it before, uh, uh, pelagic. Yeah, isn't that a good one? That's a good word. Pelagic, pelagic. Pelagic, pelagic, yeah, yeah. Hold on while I look that up. Is that a word that's part of your vocabulary already, Mike? No, it wasn't. I was just, you know, doing that thing where like, all right, I won't look at porn today. Let's go to Wikipedia and learn something, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You can do both, Mike. It's it's Well, yeah, exactly, and I do. But somehow, you know, I was just like, oh, wow, that's the orbit that wells take when they go out to the sea and come back in their mating ritual. And I thought it was such a beautiful word. And mm. um, that's why we had the well. My wife's a great artist. She drew the, did all three album covers. Nice. And um, yeah, so that was, that was that instrumental got, got, got the fancy word, the 50 cent word of the day, pelagic. It's a short word. It's got good sounds in it, you know. And uh, yeah, I had to look it up, and I'm going to try to try to incorporate that into my vocabulary. I love these. Yeah, but the whole fifty cent word—that's more of a northern thing. Down here in the south, we just call them out of town words. <laughs> oh, town I like words. that. That's one of them out of town words. <laughs> yeah. Fuck well, yeah. I have a, I have a few other uh, just random questions uh, to bounce off of you. Um, because we're kind of on the downslope of the podcast here, we're winding it up a little bit. But uh, you know, listening to all these bands um, that 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 you've you've had over your career, do you ever worry that your music will make people want to take drugs? I hope that they would see how I completely destroyed my career and every opportunity not to be a hand to mouth musician by taking drugs and wouldn't do such a thing to themselves. Because I'm, I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking, I could see people taking a lot of ecstasy listening to this music. <laughs> oh, but oh, oh, there's that part, though, of course. You know, you can't control what other people do. Yeah, right. Everybody's got to be afforded their journey, man, you know? Sure, exactly. sure. It was a little bit of a joke, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah. You know, just good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, Carlo, you nailed it. You know, I like making music that's weird, and I don't, I don't listen to mainstream music. It's just... And it do, but yet it doesn't seem weird to me. It just seems like what makes sense. And all of a sudden, like, your language you develop after doing this shit for 30 years, because that's the most important thing about punk rock to me. It's not trying to sound like Green Day. It really is just about trying to do your own thing. So, you know, I play vibraphone. I put pickups on it. I run it through pedals into an amp. And then I write songs and try to lead a band doing that. So just by luck of the draw, it's like Pollock or something, you know, I'm painting with different brushes than your normal guitar players who I absolutely worship and adore. And um, cause it's all music, but I, I do think being like some days I'll be like, like we, we played this festival the other day and it was sort of funny. I'll go ahead and tell the story. Like the band before us had a DJ and they had a keyboardist and they had, the, you know, the, the shit the kids love so much low end, my little five pound Papillon. I thought he was, he was side stage with the wife. I thought he was going to implode or just like, you know, spinal tap. <laughs> there goes the dog. The dog just vaporized from the loaded low end. And, you know, and then we're up and then there was a, you know, really successful jam band after us that, 
And, you know, I had a, a, not a, like, it wasn't empty, but definitely there wasn't 10,000 people in front of me. There was 10,000 people in front of the band before me and 10,000 people in the band in the crowd after me and there was probably a thousand people in front of me mm-hmm. but you know what it was like that there was a second that voice in the head that goes oh you suck no one even likes you here at this festival and then you know it's just like the same voice that tells you to shoot dope or whatever you just go oh fuck you you're a stupid voice i'm not gonna listen to you right you know and then at the end of it all you're like well i play a fucking antiquated instrument called the vibraphone I'm doing pretty good, you know, that anyone wants to see this stupid fucking instrument, you know, and, and, and so it's just like perspective, you know, and you're just like, all right, I'm a percussionist, you know, this ain't Tito Puente in the, the Mambo era. And speaking of North Texas, that was one of the best things ever was meeting Tito Puente when he sat in with the one o'clock lab band in um, 1986. After the clinic, we jam- I trade fours with Tito Puente He's like, oh, man, you sound good, man. You sound like Sheila E, brother. And at the time, I thought he was giving me a compliment, but he was fucking with me. And then afterwards, I went up to him. I was like, hey, Tito, it's so great to play with you and meet you. You know, you're, you're, I just I love you because that's what we did in North Texas. We didn't have YouTube. You went to Sound Warehouse. Oh, my God, there's a Tito Puente record. It's mine. You know, because you mm-hmm. get like, you know, it was mainly just Journey and Audio Speedwagon at the record stores in the 80s in Texas. But, um, I met him and I said, man, I want to move to New York. You know, what's it, you know, got any advice for me? He's like, yeah, kid. Yeah. Hey, do you know I can get any cocaine? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, he could smell it on you. He said, "Uh, this guy looks like he knows a guy. And I was like, you know, 21 and I wasn't really dabbling with you. I didn't do my first line of Coke until I was in my, probably about six months after meeting Tito. It was probably, <laughs> so it's all Tito's fault, bro. Uh, but, yeah, Tito uh, could see you had it in you. Yeah, yeah, he could see that you had the potential. Right, right, right. <laughs> he raised the brow, huh? Yes, indeed. Well, Mike, so um, uh, just uh, training an eye on the, the future for Mike Dillon. I know you're a guy that likes to go out and do, you know, 200 dates a year. You're very, you're wound up very tight. You have a lot of energy. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I've seen photographs where it looks like you're about eight feet in the air in a, in a jump above your, your, uh, your vibes. Now, is, is that a trick of the camera? Do you have a, a small trampoline back there? Are you the, you know, proof that white men can jump? I, I don't know. Is, uh, what's your secret? I am the living embodiment of white men can jump. Um, no, my secret is when it gets really good and fired up, much to the dismay of my great vibraphone company that sponsors me, Majestic, I will stand um, very carefully over the, the, I'll perch myself up on the vibraphone and keep my foot mainly over the, not on the bars, but on the, um, the little end pieces, the supports, and thrust myself up in the air, and especially that last one on Instagram, I'm literally a you know good, you know it's like Jimbo from the Reverend Horton Heat standing on his base or whatever you know I just okay. instead of standing on my base and rocking it, uh, I'll let my little punk rock side jump out and just be dorky. It looks really good in picture, but I'm sure if you see the whole thing, it just looks like 
oh, what's this guy doing? This is pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the I love the low tech, high concept, Mike. That's uh, I'm gonna, definitely going to use uh, uh, one of those photographs in, in the the posting of this because yes. Yeah. Don't stand on your base, though, Renee. Don't. don't. No, I've done that before. Yeah, yeah. You know. We, you know we, what I'm to, talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. We've, 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 we've all, we've all thrown them around and, and ground them against each other before. Yeah. I've had various guys like you know Keith Morris. You know he would put one foot on my bass drum and then lunge from that, and it's like, hey, man, keep your fucking feet off my bass drum. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I learned about that. Maybe it was Matt. I was about to do it, and, and they just looked at me and said, no, because I had done it with one drummer and got away. No. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 It's an, important to have boundaries. Yeah. Well, well so, so Mike, uh, you're, you, you have uh, dates on the road coming up. You're taking uh, the Mike Dillon band out. Tell us uh, what, what to expect. Dates? Well, I've been sort of touring Renegade this whole pan not whole pandemic of course like everyone else stopped doing it then lived off the live streams a little bit of merch money from the last tour i did and really was like wow this is great i don't have to tour and somehow i'm living yeah. you know because <laughs> i think you know it's like it's like a hamster wheel before the pandemic you know it sucks it took a pandemic uh, uh to to realize i don't have to tour all the time okay because um, I, I did it straight for all those years, 30 years on the road all the time. But now I'm just trying to be more balanced, like do what I, what I can, what comes our way, and then like take a couple months off. And, you know, I got my apartment above Checkpoint Charlie's back. So okay. um, I can just hang out in New Orleans and play gigs and um, figure it out. But I don't want to tour all the time anymore. That shit just... You know, people drive like back in the old days in 1990s, it was lots different touring than you didn't have phones like literally. And I know I'm guilty of it, but everyone just looks at their phone the entire time. Yeah, they're driving. And, you know, we did a tour in April. And it was literally like every three hour drive took five hours because there's so many wrecks on the interstates. Oh, uh -huh. from people not paying attention while they're driving, right? I would, I, I would assume, but you know what they say about assumptions. Well, Mike, um, look forward to seeing you again. Look forward to uh, to seeing you play. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it's it's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you all for participating in this first Feral Zone installment. Wow. Carlo, again, thank you for joining me and, and Mike. And uh, as always on the Troubled Men podcast, we like to say trouble never ends, but the struggle continues. Good night.
the night is quiet.